Let's take our Bibles this morning. As we get ready to jump into our second message in this series, we're calling This Is Us. I want you to open your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Luke, New Testament. Just look for the red letters, and it's one of those. If that helps. Luke chapter 15. You know, the famous author Charles Dickens was once asked the question, What is the best short story in the English language? And his reply was, the prodigal son. Are you familiar with that story? We find it here in Luke 15. The story of the prodigal son. It's actually the third story in a short series of three stories that Jesus tells in this chapter. And they all uh, revolve around the topic of things being lost, And being found. Uh, Let me just give you a little synopsis of the first two. The first story is about a lost sheep. One sheep out of a hundred sheep goes missing. And the shepherd leaves the 99 in the open country. And he goes out and he finds the lost sheep. Now the thing about the sheep is that he didn't want to be lost. He wandered off. He was terrified. He was afraid. He's calling out in the fields. And the sheep is thankful when the shepherd goes And finds him. There's a lot of people in our world that are like that. They're lost. They're looking for answers. They know it. They feel alone. They feel empty. They feel isolated. And they need a church. They need a shepherd. They need someone to come and to rescue them. It's a powerful little story Jesus tells. And then he gives another story. And it's the story of a lost coin. And it's not... uh, it's very similar to the lost sheep story, but there's some differences. There's, there's ten coins and a woman loses one of them. And the Bible says she sweeps the whole house until she finds that one lost coin. Now the coin is different from the sheep because the coin didn't wander off. It couldn't disappear on its own. The coin was lost. It was dropped. It was misplaced. The coin was lost, but it was in the house. And there's a lot of people in the church that way. They're in the house, but they're lost. There's a lot of teenagers that are that way. They've been taught to, to go to church, but they were never taught to have a relationship with Jesus. So they're, they're lost and they're in the house. But then there's this third story. And it's the story of the prodigal son. Now those first two stories, we're going to actually take some more time to talk about in our life group series. And so I want to echo what Pastor Chris said and, and get in a life group that's meeting this week or, or grab the DVD curriculum and start one yourself. But we're going to talk about those two stories. Today, I want to dive in a little bit deeper into this third story. The prodigal son is different from the sheep. And he's different from the coin. Because the prodigal son is lost by, he's lost by choice. He made up his mind. He said, I'm going to be my own boss. I'm going to go my own way. I don't want to live in my father's house anymore. I want to take what's rightfully mine. And I'm going to go out and I'm going to see the world. He's lost by choice. He leaves the father's house. Now we're going to read the story in just a few moments. But before we do, let me explain something. This is a parable, all right? So this is a story that Jesus taught as a metaphor. And here's what I've noticed in parables. Whenever you read one of these stories that Jesus teaches, it usually means one of the characters represents us. And most likely one of the characters represents God. So as we read this, there's going to be some point where we're going to read the story and we're going to say, this is us. So let's look at it together. Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11. It says, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, that younger son got together all that he had, and he set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need verse 15 so he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs he longed to fill his stomach with the pods 
that the pigs were eating. But no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I'll set out, and I'll go back to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer am worthy to be called your son, but make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up, and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. Verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servant, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. That's an awesome story, isn't it? Can we just say amen to the word of God? I think if we just close the book there, we've been fed. But let's get some more. You know, as I look at this story, what I want to do is I just want to look at the characters in it. First, let's talk about this prodigal son for a minute. You know, his part of the story illustrates a couple of things. It illustrates a couple of things about sin. First of all, it tells us about the reality of sin. And secondly, it tells us about the remedy of sin. The reality of sin... And the remedy of sin. In other words, it tells us how to get it wrong and how to make it right. If you look at his story, the prodigal's story begins with rebellion. He turns his back on his father. The the truth is, everything that his father owns is already his. He's going to receive it as an inheritance. When his father dies, him and his brother are going to get everything. But this son says, no, I want what's coming to me now. Essentially what he's saying to his father is, I would rather you be dead. I want the benefits of relationship with you, but I don't want the relationship. Just give me what's mine. The young son is not driven away by his father. He's dragged away by his own evil desires. That's what James tells us. In the book of James, he describes what sin is like and he says these words. James chapter 1 verse 14. Look at it on the screen with me. It says, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. Then it says, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Can I, can I just state something that we all need to be reminded of every once in a while? It's sin that separates us from God. Your sin separates you from God, and my sin separates me from God. Now, we don't like to call it sin. We've come up with other names for it. We define it as a problem, or as ignorance. We call it a sickness, a disorder, deviancy, youthful rebellion dysfunction, we might call it perversion, or self-discovery even, an alternate lifestyle. We might just call it reckless, or, or sowing our wild oats. But according to the Bible, all of those things are symptoms of a deeper issue. Let's not make any mistake about it. Our problem is a sin problem. Sin is a reality. The Bible says in this story, in verse 13, that not long after that, The younger son got together all that he had and he set off for the distant country and he squandered his wealth on wild living. See, how you spend what you own always reveals what's in your heart. Jesus said, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. And so the fact that he took all of his inheritance and spent it on wild living communicated the issue that was in his heart. 
There was a reason he wanted to leave his father's house and his father's rules and his father's culture and customs. The very next verse, though, verse 14, it gives us an awesome picture of the wages of sin in a person's life. Look at it with me. Verse 14 says, And after he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. Now, you know, the Bible does, does validate in Hebrews 11.25 that sin is pleasurable. It says this. It says, Sin is pleasurable for a season. How many of you know if sin wasn't fun, nobody would be doing it? Sin is pleasurable. I got like more amens on that. I don't know what that says about the audience. But you're like, amen. You know it. It is pleasurable for a season. But how many of you know seasons change? You get your kicks, but then you get your kickbacks. And you go and you... you how does the saying go? You sow to the wind, you reap the whirlwind. Reality is this man turned from the father and he grabbed a hold of the world with all that he could. But here's what we discover. We go and we grab the world and all of its pleasures. And before long, we realize that the world has grabbed a hold of us and now it won't let go. It's kind of like this. Sin often presents itself like, like a box on the sidewalk that says free kittens. Seems harmless enough. You pick one up and take it home with you. But what happens is that sin starts to grow and before long you realize that wasn't a kitten. That was a lion that's now growing in your house. And God told Cain in Genesis chapter 4, he said, sin is crouching at your door and it seeks to devour you. Hear me today. Be assured of this. Sin will always, it will always, it will always keep you Longer than you want to stay. It will cost you more than you want to pay. And it will take you farther than you want to go. And that was the situation that this young man was dealing with. He had given in to the desires of his own heart. To his own sinful fleshly nature. And and I, I can't help but think that the circumstances in verse 14 are beyond coincidental. It says, it says after... He ran out of money. There was a severe famine in the land. It just so happened that everything seemed to be good until he ran out of money. You know what I've I've noticed about God? God is so good and God is so much wiser than us that sometimes God will bless us for our good. If he wants good in your life, sometimes he'll pour blessing on us. But sometimes God will stress us for our good. He loves you enough that sometimes He'll allow you to deal with difficult circumstances just to turn your heart back towards His. And so here's this young man who's living it up. He's sowing his wild oats. He's spending all of his inheritance. And then he runs out of money. And then a famine hits the whole country where he's living. You know, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, it says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation, and it leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. That tells us that sometimes sorrow is of God. Sometimes the purpose that you're dealing with difficult circumstances because God is trying to get your attention. God allowed a famine in this young man's life because it was godly sorrow in his heart. The Bible says in Romans 2, 4, it says the kindness of the Lord leads us to repentance. And can I just tell you from personal experience that sometimes the kindness of God is revealed in consequences. Let me explain that. See, we, we say kindness and we think of what the word means to us. It means doing something good, doing something nice. Somebody's kind. Oh, that was a kind thing you did. But Our definition of kindness is is way lower than the biblical understanding of the word. The word kindness in, in the biblical understanding is not just doing something good. It's something that's good for you. It's something that's going to help you. And sometimes the kindness of God is revealed in consequences. It's godly sorrow that leads us to repentance. And sometimes some of us, let's be honest, we're just thick headed enough that if we don't hit a hard wall, we're not going to stop. And so God in His grace puts up roadblocks. 
He sends a famine. He allows us to face circumstances that will get our, our attention and turn our hearts back to Him. Verse 15 and 16 tells us that the prodigal son gets so desperate that he goes and gets a job feeding pigs. Now Jesus, again, this is a, this is a parable. He's, he's speaking in, in an extreme sense. He's painting with a broad stroke. He's trying to emphasize something to get the attention of his audience. And that's why he chooses this career path. He could have said the guy went out and got a job doing anything. But he said he went and found a job feeding pigs because he's talking to a Jewish audience. And the Jewish law looked at, at pigs as an unclean and vile animal. They wanted nothing to do with them. They didn't want to touch them. And here's a young man who came from a prominent, wealthy family. And Jesus says, now the young man, he's out of money and there's a famine. And he goes and finds a job feeding the pigs. And not only does he find a job feeding the pigs, but the Bible says in verse 16 that the young man is he's, he's getting hungry, so hungry that he actually desires to eat the pig slop. But nobody will give him any. Jesus is painting a dark picture here. He's trying to communicate to us that that sin is real. It is a reality. And its consequences are serious. So this man is so empty, he would have eaten pig slop. But there's good news in the story. There's a remedy, not just a reality of sin. There's a remedy for it. And the good news for any prodigal son or daughter is that you can get back to the father's house. Now, no matter how far you've gone, no matter how deep or dark the pit looks that you found yourself in, you can get back. And and the answer is in verse 21. I want to look at it again. Look at it with me. Verse 21 says, the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I have sinned. Now these words don't come easy. In fact, I thought it was pretty interesting to to note that in the entire biblical record concerning confessions, these words, I have sinned, only show up seven times. In, In all the Bible, only seven times in the English Bible do we see the words, I have sinned. And in those few cases that we do see that confession being made, the circumstances surrounding them are very extreme. We we hear Pharaoh say, I have sinned. But he only says it after God sent seven plagues on Egypt. Finally, he gets to the point where he says, I've sinned. We hear Achan say those words, I have sinned. But if you know his story in Joshua 7, you know it's, or Joshua 5, it's because that God literally called him out. He was hiding. He was burying his sin inside of his tent. And God called out his tribe of the 12 tribes. And then his clan out of all the clans. And then his family out of all the families. Until finally Joshua said, hey, Achan, front and center. And then he said, I I sinned. (laughs) Caught me red-handed. Achan sinned. Balaam was another one who said, I have sinned. But before he would say it, God would cause his donkey to talk to him like a man. And an angel of the Lord showed up with a drawn sword ready to kill him. And then he says, I have sinned. David famously confessed, I have sinned. But if you know his story, you know he didn't come to that place of honesty with God until he had hidden his secret sin for over a year. And the prophet Nathan came to him and said, David, you're living in sin. And he said, you're right. I have sinned. They're heavy words, but I'm going to tell you, something happens. Something happens when we say those words. And something has to happen to bring us to that point. And for this young man, for this prodigal, it's found in verse 17. And it's this little phrase, you can see it there. It says, when he came to his Senses. He came to his senses. When he complained at home about wanting to go away, he called that independence. When he was out in the country living with his new friends, he called that pleasure. But when he lost all of his money and the famine came, he just called it bad luck. But when he hit rock bottom and he found himself in a pigsty, He called it what it really was. Father, I have sinned. 
And this is the moment of truth for this young man. It's the moment of truth that begins the journey all the way back to the father's house. Down a long road and the road has a name. The name of the road is repentance. He finally came to the place where he was willing to acknowledge the sin in his own life. And in verse 18, he begins to think through the process. He says, I will set out and I will go back to my father. And I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. And can I just say to you today, if you're here and and you're running from God and and this is your story and you say, this is me in the text. I'm the one that, that left the blessing of God and I'm out on my own. I'm doing my own thing. Let me tell you, you can get back to the father's house. If you hear nothing else today, hear that. The road is called repentance. And it's not as long as you think it is. The Bible says if you will confess with your mouth and believe with your heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It's a short trip to the altar. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess, then He is faithful and just. And He'll forgive us of our sins And He'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't live so far below your means. I mean, here's a young man who's salivating over pig slop. And his father is willing to slaughter the fattened calf and throw him a party. So many of us, we've forgotten the blessing that awaits us if we would take our seat at the king's table. Don't stay another night in the pig pen. Now let's talk for a couple minutes about the father. Because I really want you to see the father in this story. You know, in most English translations, we call this story the prodigal son. Or the lost son. And it's really unfortunate that we give it that title. Because reading that title, all of our attention goes to the son. I mean, we just read this story and we assume it's all about him. But can I just be honest with you? This story is really not about the prodigal son. If it had a, an accurate title, it might be better to call it the gracious father. Because he's, he's the centerpiece of the whole storyline. He's the one that this is all about. He's the father who loves you beyond measure. And when you first see the father in this story, you see the son saying, Give me what's mine. Give me my inheritance. Give me what you, uh, you said would be mine. I want it today. I don't want to wait. And what we see the father doing in response to that request is he gives it to him. He doesn't hold it back and say, you're not ready yet. you got some growing up to do. He doesn't say, not in my house. He doesn't lock him in the room. We see the father who loves us beyond measure and yet will not hold you captive to his love. He lets him go. He lets him take the money and leave. You know why? Because God, as much as he loves you and as much as he wants to keep you, what he longs for is some reciprocity. He wants you to love him. That's the only kind of relationship he desires. One of mutual affection where you love him and he loves you. And when the son turns his back and walks away with tears in his eyes, he opens his hands and he lets him leave. He's going to use blessing and he'll use stressing. And he'll do everything in his power to get you back. But if you want to stay gone, he'll let you leave. The next time we see the fathers down in verse 20. Please have a, a vivid and a wild imagination as we look at this part of the story. In verse 20 it says, So the young man got up. And he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. He was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. Can I just ask a question? How do you think it is that the father saw him still a long way off? I'm going to tell you what I believe. I believe the father saw him a long way off because the father was looking for him. When we see this glimpse of what the father is like, we don't see a father who says, fine, and stay out. We don't see a father who takes his bags and throws them to the curb and changes the locks on the house. We don't see a father who's disinterested and doesn't care and says, well, we got, we got another son. We don't have 50% loss. Right? I mean, hey, the shepherd lost one out of 99. The 
The woman lost one out of ten coins. 50-50, we can handle that. No. He's a father who's moved. He's stirred. He spends every night sitting on the front porch watching the horizon. He's looking. He's hoping. He's anticipating the day that maybe, just maybe, my son will come home. Maybe this will be the day that my daughter returns. He's watching. He's waiting. He's looking. And then one night, just before the sun sets, he sees a familiar silhouette on the horizon. Maybe the shoulders are slumped a little lower. Maybe the head's hanging low. But he knows the gate in that step. And he gets up. He doesn't wait. Look at it. He gets up and he comes off the porch and he speeds up across the yard. And the Bible says he ran. He runs out to him and he embraces his son. And he begins to kiss him and he smothers him in the familiar smell of his jacket. And he holds him close. And I would imagine... That son at some moment looks down and realizes that where he's standing is the exact place where he had last turned his back on his father. And he realizes that he met me right here. And can I say to you today, that's the heart of the father. He wants to meet you at the very place where you left him. He says, just just turn back to me. Turn back to me. And what I love about this story is that The son does what we would do. As he's sitting in the pig pen, he begins to prepare his speech. As he comes to his senses in about verse 18, and he says, I know what I'll do. I'll go back to my father and I'll say, and then he writes this speech. I'll say, Father, I sinned against you. I sinned against heaven. I'll say, Father, I don't deserve to be your son anymore, but here's the deal I'm offering. If you'll just let me be one of your servants, if you'll just let me earn my keep, I would rather be a servant in your house than for this man in a far country. And he's got this whole speech written up. And I just love this moment because the father runs to him and he embraces him. And, and in my imagination, I can just see the son like trying to get the speech out of his pocket. And he's being smothered by his father going, Father, I sinned against you and I sinned against God. And he only gets two lines out of the speech. He only gets halfway into it. And look at the text with me. The father interrupts him in verse 22. He says, quick, bring the best robe and put it on my son. Put a ring on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. See, the servants were barefoot. My son needs shoes. The ring meant authority. Give my son a ring. The robe meant dignity. Put a robe on my son. And while you're at it, go and slaughter the fattened calf that we've been preparing for Christmas. Because today, we're going to have a party. We're going to celebrate because my son was lost and now he's found. He was dead and now he is alive. That's grace. That is still amazing. See, God is merciful. And the mercy of God doesn't give us what we deserve. That's mercy. But grace goes beyond mercy. Grace gives us what we don't deserve. See, mercy, mercy lets the prodigal son come back in the house. But grace throws him a party. That's the grace of our Father. Let me tell you about one more character in this story. Because I haven't read all of it to you yet. There's one more character that we have to examine. And honestly, this would be a beautiful story if we just stopped right there in verse 24. The father throws a party, the family celebrates. But if we stop there, we would miss out on the purpose for why Jesus told this story. See, if you go back to the very beginning of Luke 15... You get a little insight into why Jesus launched into these three stories about lost things. Look at verse 1 and 2 with me real quick. It says, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Now, by the way, if you work for the IRS, don't be offended by that. That word could be translated swindlers. These were unethical people. They were thieves. Verse 2, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Then, verse 3 says, 
Jesus told them this parable. So the reason that Jesus tells these stories to begin with is because there's all these religious people that are looking at the people that Jesus accepts. They're looking at the kind of folks that Jesus is willing to be seen with in public and they're muttering to themselves, I can't believe that he would allow those folks to come to his church. I can't believe that he'd allow these people together at this meeting. Would you look at the... at the characters that Jesus is allowed around him and Jesus says I got a story for you and so he tells us this incredible story that we call the story of the prodigal son but I want to look at how the story ends verse 25 says this meanwhile while all this is going on while people are hanging up the the streamers and blowing up the balloons smoking the brisket meanwhile The older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and he asked him, what was going on? Your brother has come home, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry. He refused to go in. So his father went outside and he he pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you. I never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me a young goat. So I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, not my brother, this son of yours, I don't want to associate with him, this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you go and kill the fattened calf for him. Verse 31. My son, said the father, you're always with me. And everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive Again, he was lost and now he's found. See, we love to tell the story about the prodigal who comes home. We love to tell the story about the father who runs out to meet us and embrace us and bring us back in. But not too many people like to tell the story about the older brother. Not too many people. Now, maybe you're here today and you're listening to this story and you go, you know, I'm the prodigal. I can associate with that. That's where I feel like I'm at right now. But I can tell you, when Jesus told this story, there was no question in his audience which character they were. Jesus told this story to show them their attitude. You Pharisees and Sadducees, you religious people, you're the ones that are standing outside in the yard. Refusing to go in and celebrate. You want nothing to do with the party. Why? Because you feel like you should have been celebrated. Why are you going to celebrate the one who always screws it up? How about me? I'm always here. How, how, about, how about throw me a party? How about do something in, in my honor? No, he sits and he sulks, not willing to return. I just want to challenge us as the church today because this story, if it says anything, it's a challenge to us to be very careful about how we respond to the grace of God demonstrated in other people's lives. And if I'm honest today, there's moments in my life where I can be like the older brother. If I'm honest, there's there's moments where I can start to feel like you know what? I, I deserve a little bit of credit. I mean, I'm, I'm doing pretty good here. I, you know, I, I think I'm doing all right. And it seems like, a, you know, somebody else that's just always blowing it, always messed up, the moment they do one little good thing, woo, we're going to throw them a party, give everybody a trophy. Right? How about try harder and earn that trophy? Right? I can be that way when it comes to spiritual things sometimes too. Start to think that, you know, this grace, I earned this grace. I deserve this grace. 
I deserve to be a son. As if I chose you. And I think the, the danger comes for the Christian. Because we forget that what we do really does matter. See, the tendency, if we stay in the natural, if we stay in the here and now, we see people being celebrated for, for just minimal effort. I mean, all you did is came back to where you left. You, you hadn't actually gained any ground. You're just back at the starting block. And we see all the, the celebration and all the emphasis. And you've been in the church for years and years. And why is it that everything we do is about reaching the lost? And why don't you do some stuff for us sometime? We're the ones paying the bills. We're the ones paying the salary. The tendency for us is to forget that what you actually do does matter. And the way that we remember is to look beyond the here and now. Jesus said, store up your treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy. You see, what we often forget sometimes as Christians, and and I'm going to throw a lot of theology at you really quick in a short amount of time. So if, if you fade it out, jump back in with me here. We've forgotten that there is a judgment for the redeemed. See, the Bible communicates that one day, those who rejected God, those who didn't accept salvation through His Son, Jesus, they're going to be judged according to their sins. It's going to be a a terrible day. And, And we, as the redeemed, we say, thank God I've been delivered. There is not going to be a day that you or I, as the people of God, have to give an account for our sin. Our sin is under the blood of Jesus. Amen? It's forgiven. The Bible says that God, when we accept Christ, has cast our sin as far as the east is from the west. He's thrown it into the sea of forgetfulness, and He put up a no fishing sign. Our sins are gone. And we thank God for that. And we should. We celebrate that. But in celebrating that, sometimes we forget that there is another judgment seat. No, we're not going to be judged for our sins. But the Bible communicates very clearly that we're going to be judged for our works. That what you do does matter. That we ought to celebrate the prodigals coming home because they're saved. Because they get in. The Bible communicates that there are going to be some that get in. But they still will get in with weeping. Let me show you the scripture. 1 Corinthians. Go with me to chapter 3. 1 Corinthians. Chapter 3. Verse 10 through 15. I think we just need to put our eyes on this today. While you're turning there, let me read another verse to you. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul said, we must all appear, all. Talking to a church, talking to Christians, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each of us may receive what is due us for the things we have done while in the body, whether good or bad. That's pretty clear. That all of us Christians are going to stand before God and we're going to give an account for the things that we did in the body. Whether good or bad. Now in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10, he writes these words. He says, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder. And someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care. He's talking about your life of faith. Building your life. He says, For only, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one that has already been laid, which is Jesus Christ. Foundation of our life as Christians is Jesus Christ. That's what we're building on. Now he's talking about the materials that we choose to use to build upon the foundation of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Look at it with me. He says in verse 12, If anyone builds on this foundation of Jesus, talking about Christians, using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work, will be shown for what it is. Because the day, that's the judgment day, the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire. And the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, 
The builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. Now, I told you I'm throwing a lot of weightiness on you right here at the end of this sermon. But hear what Jesus is saying. He's talking about those who have built on the foundation of Jesus. That's Christians. These are not lost people. There's a different judgment for them. But for those of us building on this foundation, he said, you may have used gold, silver, precious metals, or you may have spent your life building with wood, hay, and straw. And all your works, all that you did, all those years serving God or living for yourself, all of that is going to be tried by fire one day. And if you put gold in the fire, it's purified, it's refined, it lasts, it's better than it was before the fire. But if you put wood or straw or hay in the fire, it's consumed. There's nothing left. And Jesus is saying to us, on that day, there's people that are going to be saved. You can't burn up the foundation. They love Jesus. They built on Jesus. They're saved, but only through fire. And they're saved with tears. Because they wasted their opportunity to serve Jesus. You see, I get this feeling that the older brother forgot about that judgment. So he was looking for his rewards today. And the, the danger for us is if we forget that we're laying up treasures for a greater reward. The danger for us is to lose our compassion towards those who maybe don't even have a reward yet. They're still trying to find a foundation. They're still trying to find a relationship with God. And this older brother, like many Christians, sits on the sideline and sulks and said, well, I don't know why we're, why we're making such a big deal about him. I mean, he never did anything right. He never did anything but cause us trouble around here. No. The older brother, the, the father said, everything I have is yours. It's, all, it's always been yours. It's all yours. You should have celebrated this brother. In fact, the words that he uses in verse 32 is, we had to celebrate and be glad. I just want to encourage you with with a thought here before we come to the end. Your work matters. It matters. You don't ever have to be turned off by being a part of a church that that makes a big deal about lost people being found. You don't ever have to sit and sulk and have a pity party and say, I wish they would pay more attention to us. No, he's the good shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes out into the countryside to find the one. You don't ever have to worry about that because your work matters. And whether you get a pat on the back or somebody gives you a title or somebody recognizes you and honors you, the reality is there's one day you're going to stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and all that you've done in His service is going to be placed on the altar. And what was fruitful will remain. But we had to celebrate. You know, God's been speaking to me about that one verse all year. I've been excited to preach about it. I'm kind of frustrated that I waited till now to get to this verse. But to be honest with you, I highlighted it in my Bible back in the beginning of the year. And God's been speaking to me about the culture of our church. You know, we need to celebrate. We, in fact, in two weeks, we're going to have a celebration. We've kind of put it into the calendar of our church that about three times a year, we celebrate we give a sunday to celebration every every january we have a family meeting where we take the whole sunday to just look back on all god did the last year and to celebrate and to thank god and to look towards what's coming but then every spring and every fall we have new life sunday and and we've designed that day to be a celebration now we're not going to slaughter the fattened calf but we will have cake now, if somebody wants to smoke a brisket, hey, I mean, I'm, a, I'm not opposed to new ideas. But we celebrate. Why? We have to celebrate. That's what, that's what the Father said. We, we had to celebrate. Why? Because people that were lost are being found. And He didn't just say it here. He said it over and over and over again. He said it in verse 6. When that lost sheep was found, he called all the other shepherds and he said, Hey, rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. He said it again in verse 9. When the woman found the lost coin, she said to all of her neighbors, Come and rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. 
The father said it to the servant. Strike up the band. Let's celebrate. My son was lost. Now he's found. And then he says to the older brother, he says to some of us, we have to celebrate. We can't stop celebrating lost people being found. We can't stop celebrating salvation. My tendency is to just push on to the next thing. I like to make big plans. I like to set goals. I like to reach goals. But as soon as I reach the goal, I start making another goal. Celebration doesn't come natural for me. That's why we put it on the church calendar. I mean, no sooner do we reach a goal, I'm ready to go. Here's what we're doing next. That's why in all of my... Staff meetings, all of my leadership meetings, there's three things we always do. We celebrate, we evaluate, we accelerate. And we do them in that order. Because my tendency is to just want to pedal down, accelerate. Here's what's coming, let's go get it. And then my other tendency is to only evaluate what's broken. Like if something went wrong, we need to talk about that. But the goal for us as a church is not to fix it or make it good it's to make it better so we evaluate everything even the good stuff we double back and say hey that was awesome how can we do it better but we always start with celebrate we have to celebrate we have to celebrate we can't stop being thankful for everything that god has done the truth is every one of us today we've got something probably many things that regardless of what you're feeling today you could stop you could throw a party you know god's been good to you you know God's been faithful. Yeah, but I wanted to do this and my, my prayer list is getting longer. Yeah, but God's been good. Last Sunday, these altars were filled. People's hearts and lives being changed. In two weeks, we're going to fill up that baptistry and we're going to celebrate water baptism with people. We have to celebrate. I want to pray for you at the conclusion of this service. Thank you for being attentive to the word today. Thank you for giving time to just let me unburden my heart to you i want to double back for just a moment before we pray and i want to speak specifically to you that maybe feel like a prodigal son or a prodigal daughter i I don't really care about what you ran to or what you got into i just want you to know that there's a road called repentance that leads right back to the father's house and if you need that road today i want to pray with you right now So I'm going to ask everyone to bow their head and close their eyes. And we're going to just take a moment to let the Holy Spirit search our hearts, speak to us. Some of you haven't taken that road because your image of the Father has been an angry old man shaking his fist. Some of you haven't come down that road because you feel like you wouldn't be welcome back. But I hope you've seen the heart of God today. He is watching and waiting. He is gazing at the horizon. All he needs to see is your head and shoulders come up over the hill. And he is off the porch and on his way. He longs to meet you today. If that's you, would you just say, Pastor, I want to confess my sins to Jesus. And I want to be received back into the loving embrace of my Heavenly Father. If that's you right now, don't wait. Just raise your hand. Say, Pastor, that's me. Just raise your hand right now and say, that's me. I want to run back into the embrace of my heavenly Father. Thank you. Thank you for responding in this moment to God. Hear His heart. Hear His heart for you. Anyone else? You say, that's me. I want to spend another night sleeping with the pigs. It's far more for me in the Father's house. Listen, if you just raised your hand, we're going to pray a prayer of surrender. We're going to pray a prayer of confession. I want you to say it out loud. Just say this after me, but mean it from your heart. Church, would you pray it with them? Come on, let's say it together. Say, dear God, I need you to rescue me, to pick up the broken pieces of my life and put me back together. Heal my heart. Heal my mind. Heal my emotions. Jesus, I believe. That you are the son of God. 
And that you died for my sin. There is a remedy. And I confess. My sin. To you. Forgive me God. Make me new. In Jesus name. Amen. Church I want to ask you to stand all over this room with me. As we get ready to end this service. I have sensed. For the last 30 to 40 minutes that God is just dealing with some of us and I don't want to mess up this moment for you by trying to articulate what God is saying but please don't rush this moment if God is stirring your heart today about where you're at if God is stirring your heart about loving the lost or or maybe it's been about the works that you're doing and and you've lived with that sense of entitlement I, I don't know but maybe in the course of this incredible powerful short story that Jesus told the Holy Spirit's been dealing with you about some stuff I want you to know that we've created space at the end of this service where people can pray with you we want to minister to you we want to encourage you and so in just a moment I'm going to pray a closing prayer and while I pray this prayer don't wait until the altars get full while I pray this prayer I want to invite you step out from where you are come and find a place at this altar as we just allow this music to play and just allow an atmosphere of worship to stay in the house a little bit longer I want to invite you to come and to meet with God meet with Him right here if that's on your heart today come even as I pray now Father thank you so much that you've made this a house where the lost can be found God thank you that you're saving people thank you that you're delivering people that God we're seeing it time and time again God may we never tire of it may we never have in our hearts or in our mind to skip out on the party may we never live with a spirit of envy because you're generous because you lavish those who don't deserve your love with your love God make this a a house full of celebration God, let this be the kind of church that can't hold back the applause. When people come to the altar, when people get into the waters of baptism, when people become committed to your heart and your house. God, help us to understand we had to celebrate because the lost are being saved. God, I pray today that as life groups are meeting tonight and throughout this week, as we gather around with friends, new and old, God, would you be in our conversation? Would you speak even deeper than you can through one voice on a Sunday morning? Speak through many voices. God, stir our hearts to be the church you want us to be. In Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Amen. God bless you. Again, no service.